Okay. Ecclesiastes. If you split your Bible almost down the middle, and we're we're like we're there. I don't know how long we've been. I think our, our original intent was to be in Ecclesiastes for like four months or like through the summer, which like doesn't work with me. Um, and so I, I think we're like maybe at six months or something like that. But it's been a huge blessing to me. Um, I trust that it's been a huge blessing to you. God's put this book in the Bible for a reason. This is one of those books that a lot of times gets ignored. Uh, we flip past it um, a lot of times just because of um, the tone of it and the nature of it. Um, but hopefully what you guys have seen more than anything, which has been the whole point, is that a book like Ecclesiastes still speaks today. It speaks to a world like you and I are experiencing and living in today in this country more than at any other time in this country. Because you've got people that are fashioning idols and looking for happiness out of anything and everything other than God and none of it works. And Solomon is reminding us that um, sentence after sentence, chapter after chapter, that there is no God other than the one who's over the sun. There is no God under the sun that is capable of giving us um, meaning in our life. And if all we're doing is striving at trying to find a God under the sun to give us meaning, then our life will surely come out meaningless. It's all vanity. And so this book has, has really hit that. We've come to a point of the book where um, it's kind of like gotten proverbial now. So once we got to chapter 10, he's kind of gone from his failed life experiments, you know, that money can't save you and give you meaning and politics can't do it and power can't do it and accomplishment can't do it. And he's gone through like all these different things that we run to. Um, and, and now that he's like established that there's nothing there under the sun that can do that for you. He's now going to just words, like which is one of his like MOs, Solomon's, of just practical um, life helps or sensibilities. And so I'm going to carry on with that today in chapter 11. Uh, this is a lot, this is just pra more practicality again as he starts to wind up the book coming into um, 12. So let's go ahead and read the text. We'll take the whole chapter, chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. My wife loves that verse. So if a person lives many years... Let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, 
and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Um, two weeks ago, we finally got to take a trip that was like two years postponed because of just COVID stuff and illness uh, to a, a beach house over on the Oregon coast. Uh, that's my place uh, that I like to go um, and refuel and um, reflect um, and, and just calm down, basically. Uh, so once a year, we try to go out there and get a beach house, one that's sitting literally where you walk out the back onto the ocean. Uh, I need to hear it. Um, I need to see it. I need to experience the water and the waves. I'm a Southern California boy, too. So I need, I need to get that fix every once in a while. But last week, me and Carrie were able to, to go to this house over there. I think we were in Lincoln City. We were in Lincoln City. I don't think we were. Um, and we took my parents with me um, because my parents, um, which swore they would never leave Southern California, they were born there, they were going to die there, finally had moved up here um, like, I don't know, like 10 years ago. And they, and they got this house like a mile down the road from us. And um, we don't see them that much. Um, we don't visit them that much. And it's something that I always feel horrible about because I love my parents. Um, I don't want to neglect that uh, or take advantage of that. Um, but it seems like a lot of times with their life and their schedules going on and my life and our schedules going on that we just don't connect as much as we should. And so this was one of those things where it's like, we're going to go and we're just going to take mom and dad away for a week and we're just going to relax in the house. So we sat around, we did puzzles and, um, you know, stupid things, you know, brainless things that were fun and facilitated fellowship and love and company. Um, and me and my dad did deck, deck time every single day where we sat on the back deck and watched the ocean. And he's a Navy guy. He was on an aircraft carrier during Vietnam, right? So he watches the horizon and I'm watching the waves. <laughs> I'm watching the break. <laughs> What's the break doing? And he's watching the horizon because that's his thing. And one of the things that I, that I found out or realized again about my dad during those six days of deck time was that he's pretty wise. Like he's got... Um, He's got some wisdom. And there's a lot of things that, that we don't like really understand each other on. A lot of levels maybe we don't agree or we don't get down with, you know, or see eye to eye. Um, but as I'm listening to my dad over these days, just in conversation and hearing the things coming out, you, you know that you're listening to a dude that has lived and observed and learned a lot of things that I need to live and observe and learn. He has wisdom. And this, again, is in large part the section of the book that we're in. This is really what, what Solomon's doing. He's, he's had a lot of failures. He's done a lot of stupid things. He's chased after a lot of stuff that didn't benefit him, right? Lots of failed experiments. But what he has as a result of that is something for you and I that you and I need, which is wisdom. And so he's just kind of coughing some of this out right now, just observations based upon things that, that he's learned. I'm still going to trip over it. Like every time I walk by there, I need to put it over here and walk that way. Yeah, I know, dude. It's just, I'm just creating more. It's crazy. So what we're going to do today with these 10 verses is I just want to bring out four things that I think Solomon is hitting on here. 
uh, that he's encouraging us to practice or to be sensible about in our lives or in our living. And the first one is found in verse 1, where he says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Number one, invest. Invest. Um, what's being talked about exactly? Invest what? Some commentators have suggested that these verses speak to like enterprise, to like finances. And, and I'm sure that that could actually probably be a part of it because that is a part of life. It's a part of living. But I don't think that's the primary focus is just money and enterprise. Um, because in other areas of this book, he's already um, spoken against that <laughs> being the answer for our happiness and for life. Um, and uh, if it is about that, we should all be focusing here this morning. We should get like Dave Ramsey in here and start like focusing on how to diversify our portfolios or something, right? Like we need to set ourselves up, okay? I, I don't think that's all that, that, that Solomon's intending here. Um, it's possible that this principle, even though it can be monetary, isn't monetary at all in the way that he means it. It's just a life-giving sensibility in general to cast your bread upon the waters. <clears throat> to Jews reading this, this might look a little funny to us, but to Jews reading this, their immediate thought probably um, had to do with farming and scattering seed, which is actually um, some of what Solomon's going to go into here, is that whole idea of agriculture in some of his imagery here. But, but think about this. The Jews reading, when they were in, like, let's say, Egypt, what they would see year after year, is people go out in boats and scatter seed across the waters of the Nile, which probably looked really stupid to many. It would probably look really dumb to you and I to, to see that until the waters receded and brought forth wheat abundantly because every year the Nile would recede and every year wheat would flourish on the banks of the Nile. We still see the same type thing going on today, um, like even in Asia, right? If you start get to the, the rice fields, um, they're very unique looking because they're boxed off and, and the edges are elevated so that they can fill up with water, so that they can scatter their seed just to have the water recede and just to have it come forth abundantly once it does. And so this is, a, this is a practice that still goes on, that's practical. But let's just grab just a, a basic, most natural principle out of this, okay? And that being, to me, <clears throat> invest, he says, that which is life-giving, that's what we would equate bread with, is something that gives life, something that is necessary for life to others. So we're talking really on a base level about Good works. In other words, be generous in your works and be generous with your possessions. Share well what you have. Give well to others or be charitable, in other words. Be charitable. This principle is very reminiscent of things that our Lord taught us over and over again when you start getting into parables and when you start getting into the Gospels. And of course, I think one of the most memorable ones or popular ones that we know of is found in Matthew 25, right? It's the parable of the talents. Everybody remembers that parable where you have a master who comes to three basically employees and he gives them each something. He imparts something that is valuable to him, to them, 
to take care of while he's gone, right? And to, to one, he, he gives five talents, and to another, he gives two talents, and to another, he gives one, and then he goes away, and then he comes back to receive back what is his, and the one who was given five actually, like, multiplied it and gave him ten back, and he's like, well done, you know what I mean? And the one who he gave two to, I forgot I can't do that here. Uh, the one that he gave two to um, comes back with four, and he's like, well done. And the one that he gave one to, what did he do? He buried it. He put it away. He kept it for himself. And there was no distribution that happened. There was no sharing that happened. There was no charity that happened. And what did he say to him? I don't even want to repeat what he said to him. But it didn't go well. Let's just say he took back the one talent that he imparted to that young man, okay? And so we, we see this type of thought um, and sensitivity all through um, the Bible. Um, there's a statement in the, in the, in the 12-step rooms that I remember when I used to go to the 12-step rooms that's read every meeting before a meeting, at the beginning of a meeting, that says we can only keep what we have by giving it away, right? Have you heard that before? They stole that, just like they steal everything in the 12 steps from biblical principles. That's a Jesus thing right there. You and I, what we have, what we've been given, only really truly blesses and benefits us and rewards us by nature, by extending it to others. That's where the actual blessing occurs. That's where life happens. It's not by holding on and guarding that which is most precious to us, but by sharing it, by multiplying the blessing of it in others' lives. This is what Christianity is, and this is where the joy of Christianity really happens, is in the sharing, the generosity of what we have because Jesus is so generous towards us. He's been so good towards us. We've been given so much that we don't deserve. And so by nature, that gift has to be extended the same way. And so this is, this is really just how I look at what's being talked about here as a, as a life principle. And so, and so do I dare say, because I hate this phrase, in a sense, pay it forward? Like that, that phrase annoys me, but, but I think it, it probably works here. Or even better than that, pay it out. Pay out what you have. Pay out what you have. Invest in others, invest in kindness, invest in good work for your lights not to be hidden under a basket, but placed up high so that everybody may see your good deeds and do what? Praise your father who is in heaven. Bring glory to God, bring worship to the supreme gift giver, right? So I think that this is just practically what's being said, and yet I think there's, there's even a very um, personal benefit, practical benefit, um, in, in, in doing this, which Solomon brings to us next in, in, in verse 2, where he says, um, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. So number one, invest. It's just a good life principle. Invest in others. Number two, diversify. Diversify. Diversify who you invest in. Diversify your generosity, right? In other words, we don't just 
invest in, share with, do good works towards those in our family or those who are closest to us or those that we like and think deserve it, but we seek to go outside of our family. We seek to go outside of those who are closest to us. We seek to even go to our enemies with generosity and with blessing. Why? Because you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. This is an interesting phrase that he follows up with. And I want you to notice he doesn't say if a disaster occurs, but he says what type it will be when it does. Because we live in a broken world and bad things will continue to happen to all of us, right? It means that it, that it will happen. So what exactly is he saying? He's saying to diversify or give a portion to seven or to eight, not just because it's a nice thing to do, not just because it's a good work, but because it can also be helpful for you in your time of need. So here's something that almost sounds selfish, right? But it's not. Like it's something that's actually wise. It's something that actually um, makes sense. So this is, a, this is a good thing because it's helpful for others in their time of need, but it's also helpful for you in your time of need. Um, this is also known as what we might even refer to or call networking, right? Um, networking is an example. Um, all those years that I owned, owned the chimney business, um, I made it a point to, um, to not be a competitor to other chimney guys in the area but to be a friend and to, and to network. Um, there was a lot of, when I came into the industry in Central Oregon, there was a lot of bite, uh, backbiting that was going on, just like in a lot of industries, right? Everyone's competitive. Everyone wants to be the best, right? This company wants everybody's money, not just some of your money. And so, you know, it's, it's dog eat dog. And there's a lot of people that, that will um, talk smack about the other companies. Or, or even go farther than that um, to treat those companies bad, to set themselves apart, to be the best. And I wanted to make sure, not, I mean, not just because I was a Christian, but because of for reasons like this, that I didn't want to back myself into a corner with anybody. I wanted to make sure that I was on good terms with all these guys. And the truth is, I wanted to see them do well too. You know what I mean? Um, I wasn't in business to get rich. And so I went around over the years and invested and diversified and made friends with all these guys and just let them know, look, I'm on your side. And there would be times I would throw them a bone. And as a result of that, there were times they would throw me a bone. And we would kind of scratch each other's backs. And it was actually a compliment to everybody's business and everybody's livelihood, especially when things got rough, especially in hard times. Because I didn't have an enemy at that point that wanted to sink me and didn't care about how hard a time I was having. I had someone that actually cared because they knew that I cared about them, all right? This is part of what he's saying here, and this is part of just the practical sense of networking. We did this as pastors. In fact, when we went to plant this church down here, we knew that Lapine didn't need a 42nd church. You know what I'm saying? Just put another sign in the ground and be like, oh, here's another one, you know? We, we knew that there was more gospel work that could be done if we all band together under the banner of the gospel, for the glory of Christ. And so the first thing we did before we brought the door down to Lapine is started meeting with and networking with other pastors in Lapine. We're not here to compete with them. We're not here to say my church is better than your church or my church can beat up your church or like whatever. Like we're, we're not here to play that game. We're here to play the game of Jesus being made big in the community of Lapine. 
right? And so we're going to do that with as many churches that are also have that as their goal and as their aim as we possibly can, right? And so we network, and it's only gone for us. It's only been a good thing for the gospel and for us as a congregation. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. I, I don't believe there's any place you can see or experience this more, like done better, than you can in the church. In, in what this is right here, in the body of Christ. Um, one of the things that's so appealing, I think, one of the things that's so eye-opening when people actually walk into a church and take a look around is that you see people treating each other typically in ways that aren't usual. We actually act like a family in here because we know that we are a family in here. We actually act like I'm completely dependent on you and you're completely dependent on me because that's what our theology tells us, that we are individual body parts, members of one another, of a greater whole. And I believe that when you walk into a church that's semi-healthy, that's just loving Jesus and soaking Jesus in, you will experience what we're talking about here in the greatest way possible that you can on, on earth, in this life, is in the church. The way we take care of each other, the way that we're mindful of each other. If you go down, we care. Everybody else cares and everybody else feels it. And we need to figure out, what do I need to do to bring my brother and sister up? This is what we do here. This is the nature of our relationship in Christ one to another. And you know what? It's extremely diverse. Um, we've talked about this before. I wouldn't hang out with most of you, and this isn't a a rude statement, but it's about to sound rude. I wouldn't hang out with most of you outside these rooms. We just wouldn't have anything in common. You know what I'm saying? There wouldn't be much reason for me to, knowing most of you. But because of Christ in you and in me, we have everything in common. I want to be around you. I want to do life with you. He's the factor that changes that. And so just the nature of the church, I already had, oh, yeah, dude, thank you. I, I thought I had one there. I appreciate it, man. And so just the, the nature of what we have, if you think about it, is a bunch of people, diverse as all get out, from all walks of life, from all disciplines, from all backgrounds, from all likes and dislikes, right, coming together and doing life together in one unit, in one family, under one banner, all because of Christ. Like this is a perfect example of what it is to... Um, to diversify and see it work in tandem, in unity, is what's going on um, in here. And, and Solomon's just saying, yeah, this is just, this is just a good life principle too. Diversify. Whether it's your job that you're diversifying or, or wherever, diversify. Bless as many people as you can. Don't be preferential, right? Just be generous and be charitable as much as you can, and it'll end up coming back to you somehow. And I'm not talking karma. I'm just talking basic life sensibilities here. Solomon. 
Um, number three, we're going to take actually verses three. Some of you are like, you're never getting through this. We're going to take verses three through uh, six right here with this next point. Okay. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper. This or that, whether both alike, will be good. Number one, invest. Number two, diversify. Number Number three, don't throw anything at me. Just hear me out. Take risks. Some of you are like, I don't know if that's there. I think it is. Take risks. Does that sound wrong? Okay. There's an absolute truth that things are going to happen in life regardless of your planning Regardless of your worrying, regardless of your preventative measures, regardless of your strategizing and your caution and your hesitancy. So don't let it stop you from living. Don't let it stop you from living. Wayne Gretzky said, and I'm so, I'm so glad, dude, I got another hockey guy in here with me now. So like this quote matters even more. Gretzky said, you'll miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Right? You'll, you'll miss 100% of the shots that you don't. You, now, I'm not, a stat, I'm not a stats guy, but, like, I think that's a good stat. Like, that's probably accurate. You know? And, and Solomon agrees. He, to, he totally agrees. We will fail to succeed at every single opportunity that we do not step into. Every one of them. Take risks. This does not mean be stupid and do stupid things. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying take risks. Be willing to step into the unknown because that is living. That is living. It means don't live a life of paralysis due to the need to be certain of the outcome before you step there because you can't be. That's Solomon's whole point. You cannot be. Do not live a life due to your need for the conditions to be perfect, verse 4. If you're one of those people who waits around for conditions to be perfect before you commit to anything, Solomon's talking to you. He's talking to you here because you just might find yourself waiting around so long in life that you miss it. You miss it. And I, and I get it. I get I get why we don't take risks. I get why we don't step out. It's, for me, and I think for most of us, fear of failure. It's fear of failure. And, and it is that fear that immobilizes us, that, that paralyzes us, that causes us to do nothing, to do nothing, that keeps us stuck in, a, in familiar places, doing familiar things in life because it's safe, predictable, and familiar, right? We can, in our minds, remain successful there in this little safe place that I've created for myself. I know that it's pretty safe, so as long as I just stay right here and don't go outside of that, don't step outside of that, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be okay. I probably won't fail. But is that success? 
There's another type of failure I think we ought to be more afraid of, and that's the failure of not stepping into opportunities presented to us that facilitates life. I have found for myself that that type of failure of not stepping into the unknown, piling up over years and years and accumulating over years and years leads to one of life's biggest bummers, regret. I'm 48, and I cannot even begin to describe the amount of this that I already have at 48 years old. Should the Lord give me some more time and I go to 70, what's, that gonna, what's it going to look like? Like it's almost overwhelming sometimes the amount of regret. And regret is just basically the reflection of our failures, isn't it? It's the, reflex, the reflection of our failures. So it can go both ways. Um, the regret can, can be because of something we did, which is true. I have a lot of that. But uh, a lot of times it's because of stuff we didn't. It's because of something we didn't do, right? I mean, and, and, and this is the reality that we actually see in the fall, right? Right in the beginning of our Bibles, when Satan lied and the lie was bought. It was bought because of the sin of commission in Eve, cooperating, doing something she shouldn't have done, and it also happened because of the sin of omission in Adam, who didn't do something he should have done, which is step in and say, this ain't going down. But he didn't, right? And so we have both. We have the, the omission and the commission going on there. And so with the regret of omission, the not doing something we should do, we're haunted with the thoughts of I should have, I could have, if only I, had on, if, if I, only, if only I had. Let me see if I can get that out right? Um, Brando, I could have, I could have been a, what? Yeah, thank you, Nadine. Just leaving me out there, crickets. <laughs> Contender. And, 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 and so, like, here's where it gets kind of tricky, okay? Because we all look, as Christians, we all look at the cautious person, the careful person, the thorough planner, and say, that person's wise, that person's mature, and they are in their own ways. The Bible has a lot to say about that as well, right? So it's true. But there's another type of wisdom presented in our Bibles which tells us to walk by faith, not by sight. In, in fact, I would argue that that's the greater wisdom. That if there's only one of these you can grab and hold on to, grab onto that one. Walk by faith, not by sight. It's a wisdom that tells us to be pliable, to be flexible as we move through life, rather than fixed or locked in to our own plans and our own outcomes. We all know, I think, it's James 13, right? Do not say that, that tomorrow you're going to go here to this place or to do this thing, right? And what does James say? Like, you, have no, you, you can't make that claim. Like, you can't make those plans, like, the, like the, it will only happen if God allows it to happen, if it fits into his plans, right? So don't say to yourself, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to go do this thing. Say to yourself, if God wills. That's being pliable. That's being flexible. That's, that's being able to, to shift on a dime without it having ruin your whole life or your whole day because it didn't fit into your plans. 
It's that, it's that we're approaching every moment and every day and every season of our lives knowing that God may have other ones. Am I ready to move? Am I ready for what he wants to do? Because we all know his plan is the better one. Right? Whether we, whether we fully believe that in the moment or not, he, he's got the greater plan. He's got the upper hand. Right? And so, and so should we, we should want to be willing to break ours in order to see his, meet his, walk in his. This is what we're talking. And you know what that means for us who are, are, are not all-knowing like God is? It means that we're taking risks. We're stepping continually into the unknown. Continually. And Solomon's saying, this is a part of life that you, you need to learn to do. Because life's going to continue to go on and do its thing anyway. You're not going to be able to worry enough. You're not going to be able to lose enough sleep to change things that are going to happen. So what do you do? You embrace them. You step forward and you make the best of it and you walk in it anyway, looking for what God's doing all the way along. There's free, there, I know this sounds... Uh, it sounds challenging, but do you, do you realize the freedom that comes when we actually believe our theology, when we actually believe that God has the best plan and that he's always working and that he's going to do it with or without us, right? Like, do, do you understand the freedom of just letting go and saying, you know what? If he's for me, who can be against me? I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear by walking into this circumstance that I know nothing about that is completely foreign to me. God's got me, right? God's got me. All right, let me figure out where I'm at. Right here. I see, um, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this, I, I, I see no greater abuse of the paralysis, the immobility um, in the life of the believer, which is also, to me, unbelief, <clears throat> than when we use the phrase, I'm praying about that. Because that's a good thing for us to, to bring everything to God, but we use it so many times as an excuse to do nothing when God's already spoken, when he's already put what we need in front of us. We use it as an excuse to not step forward and take a risk. Oh, I'm praying about that. Well, how long are you going to do that? You know what I mean? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a point where like it's like, okay, now what? Are, are you going to put one foot in front of the other and step into that which is in front of you? No, I'm just going to wait on the Lord. You know, because it sounds so spiritual. I'm just waiting on the Lord, you know, to do what? Like burn a bush? You know what I mean? When, when, usually when that phrase is used in the Bible, wait on the Lord, it doesn't have to do with like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do in life. It has to do with people that are in desperate situations that are in, in, in great states of suffering and persecution, that are waiting on the Lord, right? David, when he's being pursued by Saul, by Saul in a cave, is waiting on the Lord for what? For, for better days ahead, right? Suffer well, okay? If you and I just sit around with every decision or crossroad or whatever in our life and say, I'm just waiting on the Lord, we will do nothing, Nothing. Pray about it. Commit it to God. Know that he heard your prayer. 
and then do what's in front of you. He's fully capable of stopping it if it's wrong. He can, he can fix any misstep or misdecision that you and I make. Like he's just simply big enough. He can do that. So commit to him your life and what's ahead of you. And then walk forward. Trusting that God knows exactly what he's doing with you in that. Exactly what he's doing with you. When we do this thing, when we become fools, basically, by living in a state of immobility or paralysis, really the reason that we are is because, and the reason why it's foolish and not wise, is because we're eliminating need for faith. We're eliminating the need for faith in our lives, which is exactly what we need to be walking in and relying on is faith. And we're doing it in favor of dependence and reliance upon conditions we can control and that are acceptable to us, ourselves, right? And when we do that, we presume upon the work and the plans of God as if we know better, as if we can do better. And you know what? We don't. We don't know better. And we can't do better than what he has planned. Do you know what's best? Do you know how things really work in life? Do you have a handle on how everything should happen? This is verse 5. This is an amazing, amazing verse that we could actually spend weeks in probably just talking about it, but this is what he's basically saying. Do you, do you actually presume to know the outcome of things that God is doing, the way that he does them? Do you know how the spirit comes to the womb? Do, do you know how God does that? Do you know how that works? I mean, th th again, this is a, this is a supernatural event. <laughs> um, it, it is a miracle uh, that, I, that I still can't, like, that's just right in front of us every day. It's right in front of people every day. Um, I am a pretty hard dude. I'm kind of an oak. Like, even when I want to cry, um, I usually can't. <laughs> Even when I know I feel like strongly emotional and should be producing tears, I can't. Uh, but four times in my life, I definitely remember crying like a baby was each time I had one. My wife had one. Each time I delivered one of my children because I knew that I was watching something that just far, far exceeded anything that I can understand or anybody can understand. It far exceeded anything that doctors can understand. When you see that happening, it's a miracle, right? If you have a baby, you got to cry. Well, I, I did. <laughs> I cried like a baby. So, right? Um, there, there's things at work and there's things at play that are beyond us, right? I can go sit in that chair right now and I'm pretty sure that it's going to hold me up. Like, I'm pretty sure that that's what it's going to do. But, like, I, I have no idea who made it or, like, what went into him figuring out how to make it. And I know that's a pretty simple thing and a stupid analogy. But, like, this is kind of what we're talking about here. As we go through life, we have no business thinking that we understand how things should come out more than he does. We can't, we can't even... We can't even begin to presume upon the plans and the ways of God. We don't even know how to evaluate life when it goes on accurately. When we see something and we just go, oh, that's just bad. There's nothing good that can come out of that. Do you know that? I'll bet you anything 
it occurred because God's going to make something good out of it. Like every time. We don't understand that stuff. Just like we don't understand how the Spirit comes to the womb. Like how he does what he does and why he does it. It's his. And it's good and it's right. And that's all we need to know and believe. Is that it's his, it's good, it's right. Uh, uh, where am I? There's something far bigger going on in life beyond what we just can see and plan for and understand and comprehend. Do you understand that? There's something bigger. This is why faith matters, right? Is God, God is working at levels that we can't even begin to wrap our brains around. So how is it that we can say, if I do this, this will happen? Or if I redraw, withdraw from this, this will be the result. We can't, we can't do that. We can't begin to evaluate the plans and workings and outcomes of him who is over all things. But because we know him to be over all things, we can move forward rather than stand still. We can move forward. And this is Solomon's point in verse 6, right? We read 6. In the morning sow your seed. At evening withhold not your hand. For you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We have no idea which work or action will prosper, so we might as well find out. That's what he's saying. We don't know what exactly is going to do what, so we might as well push it forward and see. Right? And if you fail, if you fail finding out, that's good failure. Do you realize that like, there's an okay failure? <laughs> like, you do, do you realize that the way that we grow and mature and gain wisdom, just like Solomon in this book, is through failure? But it's all redeemed in wisdom? Like, failure's necessary in life. Again, we're not looking for reasons or excuses to go out and be stupid and do something stupid, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about stepping forward into things that we can't control. Sometimes we'll come out golden on those things, like he, like he says here in 6, or sometimes we'll fail, but both is living, and God is over both. So in the morning, plant, in the evening, pick. That's verse 6, okay? In other words, act. Act, and let it work itself out. Let life happen. God's bigger than it. He's over it. Okay? And then verse 7 through 9, it says, Light is sweet. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Verse 9, So rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So we invest, we diversify, we take risks, and finally, we rejoice. We rejoice in life. We rejoice in life. Wherever you find yourself in life. He says in 7, light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Right? See, see it's, it's not just good to exist. <laughs> it's, it's good to be alive. It's better to be alive than it is to exist. One of the things that does that or tells us that that's happening is the sun that God created, right? Just ask my wife. 
She, she would never work in Alaska. She, she, would ne- she has to, like, you can, um, you can see how it affects, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embarrass you for a minute. You can see how it affects, like, every, like, bit of her thinking when she hasn't seen the sun for a couple days. Like, it, it changes everything. And so we have to find ways to, to get her to the sun. And, 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 and the life that comes out of her, that which happens in her as a result of feeling the sun, just that simple physical thing that we take for granted, is like, it's insane. It's real. It, it, it's not, it's not, there's nothing to rejoice in when we just exist. There's a lot to rejoice in when we're alive. When we're alive. And this is really what he's um, getting at here. Nothing really does it like the sun. Um, question, is it better, because I've heard both from people, is it better in life to be young or to be old? Really? Well, look, look at the room. I mean, come on. Like, this, isn't even, this isn't even a fair question. I, I've heard that actually more like it's better to be. Why? Why do you, why do you, why do you think it's better to be old? It's experience, wisdom. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll go with that. It, it's, it, it's, funny, it's funny how when you're young, um, you just want to be older, right? And then there are those, apparently not in this room, but uh, in, in, in reality, uh, in other places, uh, that when they're, they're, they're old, they just would, like, love to be young again. You know, I've seen it go both ways. Um, and, 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 and Solomon's telling us here, rejoice in both. Rejoice in both. Rejoice in your youth as well as your old age. Embrace and enjoy both of them. Because there, there's things that are unique to and only possible to be enjoyed in each season of life. And they each have their challenges as well, right? I mean, Solomon... Um, you know, says here, if you live to grow old and you're given many days, there's great blessing in that, but there's also a price tag on that. There's a price tag on that too. Remember that the days of darkness will be many. The days of darkness will be many. And, and I do believe that he's talking, he's including what follows, which is death, right? But I also believe that he's talking about what is also. In fact, that's clear just as a result of everything else he's written in this book concerning Life. Uh, the more days that you spend on earth, the greater your chances are for headache and heartbreak and loss and pain and turmoil and hardship because that's the reality of what takes place under the sun in life, right? Um, and, and again, I just want to say at this point, like, I love that my Bible doesn't lie to me, and you should too. Like, this book is trustworthy. Like, I love that the Bible doesn't lie to me. It just says what is, and it lines up. It, 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 it lines up with what I see, with what I observe around me, right? Even with our Christianity, it doesn't say come to Jesus and everything's going to be fixed. You know what I mean? Like you're just going to skip through a garden with the sun always shining, right? Like it, it doesn't tell you that. It tells you it's going to be hard. In fact, it tells you that's the reason why you're not going to have a line going out the door to sign up. It's because it's the harder thing to do, not, not the easier in life, in life, right? If I wanted like a really easy life, I would not have become a Christian. I would not have chosen Christianity. 
Because at every level, there's a battle. There's a, there's a contention going on as a result of being adopted by Jesus Christ in a world that is dark. If I wanted it easy, and I certainly wouldn't be doing this if I wanted my life to be easy, I would go back to doing chimneys. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, it's the harder thing. It's the harder thing. I don't even know how I got off that way. Um, Solomon says to, though, to, to rejoice in both. Um, my grandma Ruby lived to 103. You've heard me talk about her a lot. Um, if you see that on my knuckles, because people ask me, that's not my girlfriend. That's not my other wife. Um, I've never, this is my only wife, um, and she's there. Uh, this is my grandma, right? She lived to be 103, um, and, and there were times that I would look at my grandma when she was, you know, 100 years old and think, how amazing is it that she's seen the things that she has seen? She was born in 1912, the year the Titanic sunk. Like, think about what she saw since 1912 in her life. She just died in 2015. Think about all that she experienced and all that she lived through, right? I envied her. I, I used to think how blessed she was to come through all of this and see all this. And then other times I would look at that same lady at 100 years old and I would think how hard to be that age. How hard to have, how hard to have lived that long. Like how cruel, um, how numerous the scars that she carries right, in her body and in her mind as a result of living that long, how much she's absorbed the dark days, right? And um, I, I guess this is, this is where I was going earlier is that we, we've said it here before and we'll, we'll say it again. Being a Christian does not mean that your troubles go away. It doesn't mean that they go away. It means that you have Christ to go through them with. It means that he is there. You are not alone in your challenges, right? Being a Christian does not mean that if bad things happen or dark days visit us, that we've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that if bad days happen and visit us, that God is mad at us. It doesn't mean that. It's a part of living. These things are going to happen as a result of being in a broken, fallen world. It would be easy for us to read a verse like this and say, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid those dark days, which is usually what we do. It kind of brings us back to where we started here today, right? Eliminating faith and eliminating risk. And it's not the answer. That's not what Solomon's promoting. He's promoting something different. He's saying you are going to have hard times. You are going to have dark days. But live your life with all your heart regardless. This is really the point he's making. Live your life with all your heart, regardless of the dark days. And of course, when you're young, there's no, there's no such thing. Uh, young people tend to think that they um, will really, a lot of them, I'm, I'm really going to begin to enjoy life um, when I grow older, right? When I, when I grow up, and that young person thinks, I can't wait till I'm an adult uh, so, so that I can do whatever I want, Right? So I can do whatever I want. When I start driving, when I graduate high school, when I move out of my parents' house, then I can start living life, right? Freedom. That's the way I thought. Like, anything that was wrong in my life as a teenager had to do with my parents. 
if they just went away, like everything would be fixed, right? And even if an old timer attempts to explain it to you that um, it doesn't play out that way, you know, um, you're, you're still incapable of comprehending it. A man at 100 years old can assure us that the secret of enjoying life is to not blink, right? But we cannot hear it because the, the, the grass is always greener on the part of the lawn that we're not standing on, always in life. And the full joy of life at that point eludes us. It eludes us. My wife and I used to say, gosh, I can't wait till these kids are 18 and they're out of the house. We had four of them. Like, gosh, those will be the days. Like, we'll be able to start living then. That's when life will get really good. Now that it's happened, it's like, gosh, I can't wait for the kids to come over. <laughs> you know? I can't wait for the kids to visit. Like, that, that'll be awesome. We can't wait for visits. I can't wait for grandkids. You know? I can't wait for the house to be full again. It's the opposite. What's the point that we're always looking for the joy of life, the reason to rejoice, to occur somewhere other than where we're at? And that's why we miss it. That's why many of us really fail to live and rejoice in the season of life that we're in, is because we think it's there or there. And Solomon's saying, it's here, and it's now. He says to the young person in verse 9, their heart ought to cheer them in the days of their youth. Don't look ahead for life to start. Don't look ahead for joy to start. Feel life now. Enjoy life now because you're in a perfect place to enjoy and experience stuff you will never get back, that you will never be able to experience again, right? There's a story of a boy that got a pair of light-up shoes for Christmas. You guys know those ones I'm talking about? They got like the funny looking soles because they're so big because you got to put things in them. And uh, they, they light up. So every time the, the foot hits the ground, like the lights go off, right? And he was uh, so excited to unwrap these and get these at, at Christmas. And he wore them all day. He was like so happy for these things. He thought they were so cool. He wore them all Christmas day. And then after that, he took them off that night and he never put them on again because he remembered his mom saying when he unwrapped them, uh, be careful with those because once the battery goes out, they won't work anymore. And so after that day, this kid, remembering what his mom said, took the shoes off and never put them back on his feet. And then what happened? His feet outgrew the shoes. When he revisited that and went back to that, he couldn't put them on even if he wanted them. That time to enjoy those shoes was gone. It was gone. That window had closed, and the joy was robbed, lost from what he could have had in that moment. Rejoice, young man, Solomon says, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Live. Rejoice in your youth before it's gone. Or as Ferris Bueller says, life moves pretty fast, right? So if you don't stop to look around once in a while, you can miss it, right? Not that we endorse that movie here. <laughs> Which brings us appropriately to the next part of this verse, the very last, we're almost there, uh, because Ferris meant this for youthful stupidity, Right to be disobedient and to be rebellious to adults and to his parents and to skip school and do things that he shouldn't be doing, right? But Solomon does not use it that way. 
Um, don't be stupid, basically, in the rejoicing of your youth, is what Solomon says in verse 9. Don't use your youth for an excuse to be careless, foolish, sinful. Right? Why? Because how you live matters to God, regardless what age you are. How you live matters to God. Therefore, should matter to you, right? God will bring you into judgment, it says at the end of verse 9 there. What you do, even when you're young, and how you do it matters. It matters. We don't get a hall pass because we're spring chickens. You know what I mean? Like just finding our way in life, right? The young man, too, is responsible for his life and how he lives it. Solomon goes on to say in verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So first, vexation. It's not really a word that we use very often. I don't think I've ever in conversation with any of you spat that word out or heard you spit it out. It's not a word that we usually use. It simply means annoyances, vexation, to be annoyed or frustrated or worried about something. Okay, So it's something that kind of nags at you. In other words, don't focus on the annoyances, frustrations, worries of life. Why? Because those are the very things that will rob you of life. Those are the things that take your life away. If that's all that's on your mind, right? those are the things that will blur your rejoicing. Solomon also says, put away pain from your body. Um, so basically, like, be healthy and feel good physically all the time. No. That's not what he's saying here. The word pain is actually the same as evil. In fact, some of your translations may actually um, translate it to evil. So put away evil from your presence. Put away evil from your presence. Again, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Don't follow your heart and don't follow the crowd because both will take you off a cliff. Both of them. If you follow righteousness... If you follow the Lord, which is what we're going to move into, what Brent will move into next week as you go into verse 1 of chapter 12. If you follow righteousness, your heart will cheer you in the days of, their youth, of your youth. There's a big difference. There is great joy, even while young, in doing what's right. It's just so hard for us to believe that when we're that age. Right? There's great joy, even while young, in doing what is right. And the young is encouraged to rejoice, but to do it responsibly. Remove vexation and evil. I talked about my dad a little bit in the beginning. I want to talk just for a second about my mom because she's a perfect example of this in my life. My mom uh, grew up in a Christian home with strong Christian parents, and she came to the Lord, she says, at like the age of six, right? Like it was before that, but that's when she got baptized and made a public profession and, and really, you know, threw herself all in before the world. And my mom grew up just like any other kid in Southern California. You know, she wasn't rich or completely poor, but she had everything she needed. And um, uh, she never cussed, and she never smoked a cigarette, and she never drank any alcohol, and she never went and watched bad movies. And she, like, she like never did any of these things that a lot of teenagers think that they need to do. She simply, like, put away evil from her, she, she believed her scriptures in the way that God wanted her to live. And, and she grew up through all those years, those pivotal years, and even those, um, those dangerous years. And, and she came out rejoicing in the Lord because she followed the Lord. And my, I've never heard my mom once 
talk about any kind of regret. I've never heard her talk about any kind of regret of waiting until she got married to my dad, you know, of, of, of remaining a virgin until she got married to my dad, that she didn't go and try things out. Like, I've never heard that. I've never heard regret about not trying out different types of drugs and different types of drink and the party lifestyle that everybody else was doing in her school. She, she never mentioned any regret. She has so much joy that comes out of her, not only because who she is today as an older lady, but how she lived as a young woman, rejoicing in the Lord and not in the desires of her heart and the promotions of the world and the enticements of Satan. She followed God and she came out with great joy through that period of her life. She speaks fondly. Those are the kind of testimonies I love. Are the like Because my testimony isn't that. And a lot of your testimonies probably isn't that. Mine is like, I went and like hugged a bunch of grenades and pulled the pin. You know what I mean? And then like Jesus put the pieces back together at some point after I did all, you know what I mean? And, and I just love hearing like these testimonies where people came to the knowledge of the, of the saving grace and goodness of God at a young age and then just set their hearts toward following him through life. Those people have joy. They have had joy in every stage of their life because there is no greater source of joy and satisfaction, which is the point of this whole book, than in him. It's in him. Nowhere else. I want to close just really, really quick with seeing how Jesus plays into this really quick, and and I promise this will go quick. I thought to myself, how do these life principles, how, how do we see them validated in the life of Jesus? Right? Like, like, are they validated in the life of Jesus? And, and, and if so, um, how important, you know, is, it, is that for us? And, and so to think of the first one, which is invest, right? No one could ever look at Jesus and say, this dude didn't cast his bread across the waters. No one can ever look at him and say he did not invest. I don't care if you believe he was the son of God or just a good guy. You can't say this guy did not cast his bread across the waters because he, that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he came to do, right? He literally came to distribute life abundantly, liberally. In fact, Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life, right? In other words, he is that which is necessary for life, and he freely offers it and casts it upon all. Diversify. Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not, But as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, right? Israel might have thought through a lot of their history that it was all about them. But it was clear when Jesus came that it was all about everybody. It was not just about them. That he was going to blow this whole gift of redemption and atonement open for people that didn't deserve it for people that weren't insiders, for people that were enemies, for people that were aliens and foreigners to him and the knowledge of him, that he was going to extend everything that he had as far as he could, right? He diversified. (laughs) He diversified. He offers the greatest necessity of man to every man, right? 
There is no discrimination with him. There is no partiality with him. There is no preference with him. His heart and love towards all people is seen through his life, death, resurrection that is offered to all, extended to all, bestowed upon all, because Jesus is Lord of all. Number three, take risks. Technically, it's impossible for him to do this, right? I think we all know that. Um, he's God. He knows all things. He does anything and, he so, and so, a, the, you know, the, the thought of risk is kind of eliminated, right? However, what he chose to step into were some very bad conditions in order to bring us life. Think about that. Like, he's God. Like, he could have made the whole redemptive plan unfold in a way that was very preferable to him. And he stepped into some bad conditions. The conditions he stepped into had nothing to do with convenience. They had nothing to do with ease or safety. They were not preferable. But he acted. He went anyway. He went anyway. And the way he chose to do this whole redemptive act in many ways did and still does to many people look like more of a failure than it does a success because of the way that he chose to do it. I mean, think about that. But it wasn't. Not only was it not a failure, it was the greatest victory mankind has ever known, that the world has ever seen. He stepped into, by our vantage point, the most risky, dangerous, low percentage situation and came out the back of it ultimate, in ultimate success. Ultimate success. A success that brought us life and that facilitates life. Just remember, as you take risks, that even though you may not know exactly what is on the other side, the one who holds you does. He does. He knows what's there. There are no surprises. And you and I can take great comfort in living, in being alive because of that truth, that reality. And then finally, rejoice. How is it that Christ was able to rejoice in what happened to him? Well, if you notice, as you read through the Gospels, it was by doing the Father's will. It's exactly what I was talking about with my mom. It's exactly what Solomon's talking about with the young person. We just don't think so. It, it, there's that, that, that fleshly part of us, that sinful part of us, that continues to think that God's just a killjoy. Like he's just keeping us from things we really want to do. He's keeping us from really having fun when it's actually the opposite. His ways are best. There's, there's, there's no other option designed to maximize our joy and our rejoicing more than doing things his way with him. Amen. Nothing. It's our sinfulness that tells us otherwise. Right? Jesus took great joy. He rejoiced in his horrible circumstances in life by doing the Father's will by doing the Father's will. And he lived through the things he did, not necessarily for the immediate joy that would occur, but for the unending joy that would be established afterwards, right? We see this in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You know what that is? That's you and you and you and you and you and me. People that did not deserve it and do not deserve the gift to, to be brought into the family of the Most High God have been brought into the family, and that gave Christ joy to bring us there. What an amazing thing. What an amazing God we have. What an amazing life that we have to live if we're living it 
Lord, thank you so much for your scriptures, which always speak life, even in a book that may be considered one of the darkest books in the Bible. There's so much life to be had and, um, and seen and known and walked in. And so we thank you, God, that these are the words of life, that this isn't uh, just anybody's words on paper, um, that, that, that this is absolute truth that is absolutely authoritative and absolutely in our best interest. And so we thank you for um, allowing us to sit around at your feet and just, and, and, and just um, contemplate and observe your goodness once more. And that's displayed nowhere better than it is in your son who came and lived, died, and rose so that we may know you. And so we thank you for that today. And we lift our voices in song and thanksgiving and praise because of that today.